This is Epicenter, episode 470 with guest Sriram Cannon from Eigenlayer. Welcome to Epicenter, the show which talks about the technologies, projects and people driving decentralization and the blockchain revolution. I'm Friederike Ernst and I'm joined by Felix Lutsch as my co-host today. And we are speaking with Sriram Cannon, the founder of Eigenlayer, which is a restaking protocol. And what that means, we will get to in just a minute. But before we speak with um, Sriram, um, let me tell you about our sponsor this week. Omni is your new favorite multi-chain mobile wallet that puts the power of Web3 at your fingertips. In just three tabs, you can stake and manage your assets on over 22 built-in protocols, including all major EVMs, Layer 2s, non-EVMs like Cosmos, Solana, Near, and more. Omni abstracts away all the complexity while being fully self-custodial, meaning getting yield on your crypto has never been this easy. Omni also has uh, multi-chain NFT support, so you can view all your NFTs in one place and you can flex your cleanest NFT by setting it as your app background. Don't forget to check out the Explore section in the app for your daily fix of the hottest apps, yield and news across chains. And uh, there's a lot of news recently. Omni recently upgraded to, um, its app to provide you with more functionality than tens of different DeFi apps and wallets combined. To highlight their transformation, they renamed from Stake Wallet to Omni, the next generation super wallet. Join thousands of users on this next generation wallet by downloading it today on iOS or Android at omni.app. So, Sriram, it's a pleasure to have you on. Um, I recently I moderated a panel at DEF CON uh, where you were a very contentious guest. It was on incredible neutrality. It was so contentious that we released it as a special episode on Epicenter. We'll talk about credible neutrality and kind of centralization and looming decentral decentralization. Um, I mean, a, a little bit later in the show, but before we kind of kick it off properly, tell us, how did you get into crypto? Thank you so much, Frederica. I, I enjoyed that panel as well. And, uh, you know, we could use more frank, candid uh, conversations in this space. And uh, telling a little bit about myself, uh, I got into blockchains per se in 2018, around January. But uh, my interest in peer-to-peer -peer systems dates far back. My PhD thesis was basically in peer-to-peer -peer and wireless networks. This is my master's and PhD span from 2006 to 2011-12. So I've been thinking about these systems. At that time, the, my interest in wireless was primarily peer-to-peer -peer wireless and ad hoc mesh networks was mainly thinking through, imagining a world where we don't need centralized intermediation to for me to talk to somebody else. And uh, we were thinking one of the big use cases for something like this would be last mile coverage, right? Like in developing countries where there may not be enough wireless infrastructure. But actually, we were pleasantly surprised with the scale of infrastructure deployment in developing countries around the world where uh, the, the need for something like that uh, didn't emerge. So uh, after my PhD, um, I switched out and was working on computational genomics for several years. And where we were mainly working on things like how, how do we analyze data coming from DNA, RNA sequencing, how do genes regulate each other, all this kind of stuff, totally different from what I do uh, right now. 
But in January 2018, around that time, uh, my PhD advisor, Pramod, who is now uh, at the Princeton Blockchain Center, so he called me and he said, Sri Ram, did you hear about this thing called Bitcoin? I said, I heard about it, but I don't know much more. And uh, he's like, oh, the things that we used to think about a lot, you know, how to maximize throughput, minimize latency in peer-to-peer -peer type systems is what you know, Bitcoin is facing. There's a whole bunch of problems. Do you want to come and work on it? And uh, as interesting as it was technically, I had already been burnt once trying to trying to do something in the peer-to-peer -peer space. And uh, also, I had a kind of uh, in intrinsic distrust of uh, financial speculation. And uh, <laughs> I, I looked at it at that time, and uh, uh, I wanted to see if there is some more fundamental reason for me to commit to work on that for, like, let's say, a 10-year time scale. And um, initially, I was not convinced. And it took me three, four months of, like, wandering around. And uh, one of my, like... Um, basic paradigms, which is uh, comes from like evolution. And you can ask like, what is the kind of evolutionary advantage of uh, the species Homo sapiens? And, you know, an, an immediate guess would be something like, oh, we are intelligent and therefore we can, uh, we've kind of taken over this planet. But I think a moment's examination would suggest that that's probably not true. Because if you take one intelligent person and take a gorilla and then give them an island, you know, who has better survival there. So uh, the thesis, this is actually most uh, clearly articulated by Yuval Noah Harari in his book, Sapiens, that the reason humans uh, have taken over this planet is because we cooperate flexibly in large numbers, because we cooperate flexibly in large numbers. I really like this thesis, and it's kind of uh, a foundational mental model for me. And as I think through the thesis and looked at something like Bitcoin, it became clear that um, the ability to cooperate is limited by trust, right? Like I'm going to cooperate with you if I know I can trust you. And if I can remove the barriers to trust, then I'll... the. the then there'll be more cooperation flexibly in large numbers. So I saw this as kind of like upgrading societal infrastructure and even providing basically uh, an evolutionary advantage for, for our species in our ability to cooperate flexibly in large numbers. So that became like, a, once I saw that paradigm that essentially crypto can play a role in upgrading our cooperation infrastructure, I became fascinated with it. And over the next in a few months, I started diving in deeper. And uh, so I would say that I've gotten deeper and deeper down that rabbit hole in the last five years. So that's how I got into crypto. Nice. So yeah, before we talk about Eigenlayer, the project we're here to talk about, I guess, one step before that, or where you're still part of is the kind of University of Washington blockchain lab. Can you that's maybe right. talk a little bit about what your what the goal of this lab is and, and what you've been researching there or you're still researching there, Absolutely. if you are. Yeah. I, at the time, you know, uh, I was uh, working on, like I was saying, computational genomics, but I was a professor, assistant professor at the University of Washington, Seattle. And uh, 
what what ended up happening was as i got more interested in this i found that there is a bunch of like basic questions which are unanswered right so just looping it back to my thesis cooperate flexibly in large numbers you know bitcoin already showed us that you know you can do trustless cooperation i would characterize ethereum as having showed us that we can cooperate flexibly you know and harari uses the word flexibly to differentiate from other species which only cooperate genetically right like army ants cooperate in large numbers but only genetically and you know uh, the way i think about ethereum is it enabled more flexible cooperation because you can programmatize you know applications that can then build on top of this common trust structure and so the thing that i thought was missing at that time is the in large numbers part and in large numbers basically to me meant we need a much more scalable substrate so most of our research ended up being thinking about how do we do scalable blockchains and what are the core features of consensus protocols how do we get scalability how do we get the game theory around this right and so on so the, this is this became the agenda and this became big enough you know to start the uw blockchain lab so uh, earlier it was part of my uh, other research just one one strand and the goal was basically to understand and create enough primitives so that we can have scalable blockchains so that was kind of the agenda for the lab and while doing this one of the things that i ran into uh was when you're thinking about how to build new say consensus protocols or scalability or any of these things there are very few avenues for you to deploy them into production so what do i mean by that you know imagine you had a great idea for a distributed application like a smart contract then you could then take it and run it on top of any major smart contract blockchain say ethereum or any of these other chains that came after that but if you had a great idea for how to improve the consensus protocol or scalability or adding new features like how to build better oracles or how to build better data availability or any of these things there is no place for you to go and deploy any of these innovations in fact every new innovation requires you having to create yourself a decentralized trust network and the way i think about decentralized trust is it's like a unicorn it's so rare and it you know it barely exists and so it is completely untenable to ask like a good distributed systems engineer to also create decentralized trust along with each of their innovations this appears rather insane to me that this is the expectation that we have that like each person who has a good idea for a consensus protocol a good idea for a virtual machine also go and create a social revolution to create decentralized trust is just simply untenable so initially i didn't understand all of this my initial thinking was hey we have these cool ideas for how to improve consensus protocols maybe somebody will take up and use it and what i saw was there is a lot of governance bottleneck and pressure in big systems which which rightfully should exist to you know the next upgrade needs to be made sure that you know it's it's really really accurate correct and safe and it's a long process to get there and there is no place to do rapid experimentation so saw that and i was a little bit frustrated with this uh, this state of the ecosystem that basically the idea that smart contract developers had a variety of options for experimentation whereas infrastructure builders which which i thought was the core bottleneck 
which was uh, limiting the scope of blockchains, did not have the same playground for innovation. And so this became a little bit of an obsession, trying to figure out how do we borrow existing large trust networks to then go and create and let anybody innovate on top of a common substrate. And uh, I would say that was kind of the uh, seeds for what became Eigenlayer later, is this obsession in trying to figure out how do we leverage existing trust networks to do new things that it was not designed to do. So that, that's, that's a little bit of prelude on, uh, on what we were doing before and how it led to this project. Fantastic. So Eigenlayer lets you piggyback of um, an existing decentralized trust network. It does that through a mechanism called restaking. Can you explain to us what that is? Yeah, absolutely, Frederica. When you ask this question, how can we leverage an existing trust network to do other things? It, it begs the following you know, secondary question, which is, what is the root of trust of these existing networks? And we can take Ethereum as, as an example, or Bitcoin as another example. So what is the root of trust of Bitcoin? The root of trust of Bitcoin is the proof of work which powers you know, security for this network. And similarly, what is the root of trust for Ethereum is the proof of stake that powers the security for this network. What do we mean by proof of stake powers the security for this network? People are taking their stake, their ETH, and then locking it in a contract and then saying that I am abiding by the conditions of block production of this network of Ethereum. And if I deviate from it, if, if I follow it, give me rewards. If I deviate from it, I have liability that I may lose my ETH. And this constrains the set of possible behaviors that participants in the block production system can exert. They have to make valid blocks. If they make invalid blocks or double sign blocks and so on, they are liable to lose their ETH. So this is the root of trust. So the root of trust of Ethereum is people putting down ETH and committing to both positive and negative incentives for actually making this block. In comparison to, say, Bitcoin proof of work, where people are buying and investing like mining equipment and using that to mine uh, Bitcoin blocks. And the space of there is a positive incentive for them. The positive incentive is that if you continue mining on the longest chain, you'll get rewards. And there is a negative incentive, which is that if you know you don't you try to attack the system or whatever, the there's no programmatic negative incentive, but there's a subjective negative incentive, which is that the Bitcoin to USD price may go down. And that adversely impacts the value of your investment, which is this mining equipment. So that's the economics underpinning the root of trust in Bitcoin and say the root of trust in Ethereum. What we found was the Ethereum root of trust or in general proof of stake root of trust is much more programmable. And what do I mean by that is you can take the same stake and opt in to additional conditions, additional positive incentives and negative incentives because it's stake. And stake is programmatically controlled by the blockchain. Whereas you cannot do the same thing on Bitcoin. You cannot take Bitcoin root of trust and then say that I can also opt in to additional negative incentives because any additional negative incentives are, have to translate to Bitcoin to USD price movements, and that's not possible for us to modulate. So 
we found that and 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 it is more fundamental than that because you know the core idea is you cannot the bitcoin blockchain cannot go and burn your mining equipment if you do something wrong and that's because that's just there is a digital to analog translation barrier whereas you know your eth is stored in a contract and you can basically you know burn lose transfer whatever those that eth so now having got into the root of trust of proof of stake we can ask how can we leverage the same eth to to then also secure other things imagine a world where all stakers opt in restake which is basically put their stake at commit their stake to additional services they say that hey i'm going to also run this other data storage network this uh, oracle or this new chain any of these other things and they say that if i do not uh, behave correctly on any of these services i'm liable to lose my eth and if it turns out that all of them all the 100% of eth stakers opt in then you have kind of gotten the same root of trust that that is underpinning the ethereum blockchain to also opt in to your service so you can think of once you have like everybody opted in everybody restaked then it's almost as if the ethereum protocol upgraded itself to make sure you are basically this other service is being run by everybody who is also running the ethereum staking and you can think of like two different ways in which trust transfers one is trust arising due to decentralization each stake is widely distributed and and staked so that is one dimension so to just access that dimension it is sufficient if the same set of each stakers also go and run this other service but to transfer the economic incentives we need the stake to be committed programmatically to additional slashing conditions relevant to each of these services so eigen layer uh, allows basically is a platform that lets stakers opt in both their like decentralized trust and economic security to opt in to validating all of these other services to give a bit of context on the name eigen layer eigen in german for your own it's we we envision a world where anybody can come and build any new service without having to go find or build their own decentralized trust network they can leverage this existing massive trust network of ethereum and then uh, and then build this on top we find the timing to be uh, this is the right time to build something like eigenlayer because we just went through the merge and we are in a fully proof of stake world right now in the ethereum uh, landscape as also the layer 2 landscape having um a uh, significantly uh driven technology forward for example by having sophisticated fraud proofs and validity proofs and these may be needed for services to exert slashing so if a service for example if i'm running a chain and in that chain if you double signed a block or if you signed an invalid block it should be transparent on the ethereum blockchain whether uh that was correct or not and to do that you need to have either fraud proofs or validity proofs and the the emergence of the layer 2 actually helps us uh in in basically uh writing these slashing conditions sharply so that's a kind of quick overview of uh eigenlayer there's tons to unpack here maybe kind of let's roll up historically a little bit before we kind of dive into the weeds here there used to be 
um, the concept of merge mining. Or, I mean, the concept is still around. It just doesn't really get talked about anymore. Um, so basically, the idea behind merge mining was that if you, in proof of work, obtain the right to build a block, um, you would be conceded to build the block on a different chain as well. So basically, so so that basically several chains can use the same proof of work. Is this the proof of stake equivalent to merge mining? Yeah, absolutely. I think this is, uh, so the restaking, another way of thinking about restaking is, is just merge staking, right? And I think this is probably one of the reasons why nobody else came up with it and we came up with it is because, you know, all the OGs who have been around in, in crypto, like you all here, <laughs> uh, have looked at this paradigm of merge mining. And merge mining is the idea, like uh, Frederica just explained, that basically if you mine a block in Bitcoin, you also kind of mine a block in this altcoin or this new ecosystem. And merge mining had very limited crypto economic transfer. So what do I mean by that is if you merge mine Bitcoin and some other chain in some other altcoin in parallel, Firstly, you need a lot of Bitcoin miners to opt into this other system in order to have any security transfer, because even if you had a majority honest in Bitcoin, if only 5% is merge mining your other coin, then basically you, you don't have any measurable security because we know 51% of Bitcoin miners are honest, but doesn't mean 51% of 5% of Bitcoin miners are honest. So you need every all the Bitcoin miners to opt in. So that's number one. But even if every Bitcoin miner opts in to this other system, there is still a massive limitation. And the limitation is that even if 100% of Bitcoin miners are mining this altcoin, if they all coordinated to attack this altcoin, what happens is the altcoin system doesn't work. But that does not translate into any kind of like a meaningful loss for them in in the Bitcoin. Because, you know, they can continue to use their Bitcoin mining equipment to mine Bitcoins. So the at the end of the day, the transfer of economic security from Bitcoin to any of these altcoins, which are merge mine, is very weak. And because it's very weak, uh, these systems did not did not evolved to the extent that people anticipated early on. And these once these flaws were identified, people kind of gave up on this paradigm. And I think this is the reason why nobody really revisited this paradigm with the new lens of staking. And what we did, you know, as, as kind of not having lived through all that experience, is we said, oh, yeah, okay, staking means there is slashing. And what this means is if you had, like, you know, a $20 billion staked in Ethereum, but even if 5% of it, like $1 billion gets staked in your alternative network, if you misbehave, if you can lose all your ETH, right, the $1 billion of ETH, that is a concrete negative penalty. So the transfer of economic security is nearly perfect in merge staking, whereas the transfer of economic security in merge mining is very limited or non-existent. So once we kind of grokked around this, uh, and, and this really needs two things. It needs proof of stake. It also needs a powerful general purpose programming because otherwise you cannot have strong programmatic conditions which slash the 
money when you're misbehaving in all these protocols. So, and both of them were kind of nicely getting well-developed in Ethereum. So that's the context for why I think many others who may have come up with it missed it because of the, the trajectory of merge mining, which basically didn't work. And I think merge taking works perfectly. Yeah, I think I've seen you describe also iGlayer as this programmable slashing protocol, right? And I, I think one thing's interesting, I guess to some degree, if you if you think about sharding too, right? Like I guess if you double sign on one another shard, you're kind of also slashed on the main shard, which essentially is similar, just that in this case, maybe in iGlayer, you somehow basically have like shards that do like different tasks. It's permissionless sharding, wanna... basically. If you want to think about it, yeah. So it's it's very interesting concept for sure. I I have this this one question that I definitely want to ask. Why we're already on the kind of meat of it with the slashing, which is uh, essentially on Ethereum right now. If you are a big enough like staker, you have this concept of correlated slashing, right? That if like thirty three percent of the network double sign at a certain point, you can have a hundred percent slashing. Um, now. I guess I'm wondering, since, of course, if you add more risks or more services on top that can be slashed, more conditions, and, and this case might be one of them, you, you might potentially go like above 100% slashing. Is, is that, how do you like deal with that? Is there some kind of systemic risk there that the system generates? And, and how, if there is, or like, if, how do you think about it and how do you, limit that uh, this this happens, which obviously we, we don't like to see. <laughs> no, no, we don't like to see that at all. And we try to minimize the chances for something like that. But let's zoom out a little bit and see what we envision the main use case of Eigenlayer to be. Where we envision Eigenlayer to play the biggest role is build services for the Ethereum ecosystem. So. If you look at uh, uh, if you look at what an application like Adapt today needs, it, it is paying Ethereum for you know decentralized trust on block building, right? Like on block making and block validation. But there is a whole domain of other things that are all needed in order to make this application usable. This could be things like I need oracles, I need bridges, I need. MEV management, I need data availability, I need, you know, faster settlement, whatever the set of other services, you know, in a modular world that you may want in order to actually have uh, the application be trustless. And if you look at this, and when we talk about systemic risk, I think there is a kind of natural thing that people freak out when they see like, uh, oh, your leveraging trust is going to be like uh, trigger systemic risk. But actually, I think Eigenlayer significantly reduces systemic risk. And I'm going to kind of make a case for that. And why, why do I say that? So what is the systemic risk that we see today? If you're an application and you consume, you know, trust services from Ethereum, but you also consume trust services from oracles, from bridges, from you know, other things that you all depend on. And in some sense, trust is naturally based on the minimum bottleneck, right? Like whichever is the bottleneck trust that determines like how much trust you're getting. So you have, you know, ecosystem service from Ethereum that basically makes 
blocks, but you also need all these other things. So imagine if you had like $20 billion staked in ETH on L1, but you have like $1 billion staked in your Oracle, $1 billion in your bridge, and $1 billion in your data availability and other, other things. Now, the trust that you're getting as an application, what is the cost of attacking all these applications? Find the least trusted one and take over that thing. That is all that is needed to actually attack the whole system of applications. And okay, now imagine in an eigenlayer world, you're fully overleveraged, okay, which is what we are kind of worried about. What does overleverage mean? Like every staker is doing everything, okay? Every staker is participating in the Oracle, every staker is participating in the bridge, every staker is participating in the data availability. In fact, I'm going to argue that this is the best possible world we can build. Why is this? Because now to attack any one of the applications, you have to attack either the core L1 or one of these services. And if you attacked any one of these services, you're going to slash 51% of that service. So that's the mental model for building on Eigenlayer is you should have, if the safety of that service failed, right, then you should be able to slash a majority of the stakers. So if you take this mental model, then essentially what you can do is to now attack any one of these services, you need to attack like this $20 billion stake. You cannot attack $1 billion stake and take over the system. So the cost of corrupting the ecosystem actually increases under perfect restaking. If you're restaking... But so does the reward, no? So does the reward. The reward doesn't increase, actually. Why? Because you could have already taken that gain by just attacking the L1. So the, the reason the reward doesn't increase is the same set of dApps. So... The, there is a set of dApps already living on Ethereum. They trust the Ethereum L1, right? And now they were dependent on all these external non-ecosystem services, right? Like Oracle's bridges, which were not done by the L1. They were dependent on all of these. And by attacking L1 anyway, you could have attacked these dApps. But because, because it is trust is the min of many things, if I trust you and Felix and somebody else, and anyway, I'm tr trusting, let's say, Frederica with my life, I might as well trust her with my bag and like other things uh, instead of like giving those other things to other people, then, you know, my trust exposure actually increases. But the cost of corruption doesn't, the profit from corruption doesn't increase because Frederica could have already taken my life and she, she, she if she doesn't, the same thing is happening with the L1 is basically already the dApps are trusting the L1 for block production. If you double sign, if you do any basic issue at the L1, you could have taken away kind of like value from the dApps. I'm with you, part of the argument. So, I mean, obviously, if you have a system that is composed out of individual components, the weakest link is what you need to break in order to break the system. Totally with you on this. But if you have different chains or different um, applications, you know, secured by the same stake, to me, that's not the same thing. So basically, if you have, say, the Oracle that would have been incorporated anyway, yeah, that's kind of that's still the same system. So if if I look at Ethereum now, say Ethereum, uh, the ETH, you know, Ether is worth worth. I'm making this up now, 150 billion, give or take. But the ETH ecosystem is worth 500 billion or 800 billion, whatever. I haven't done the maths, but probably ballpark correct. And that's probably fine. So basically, but if you have, if you were to secure like the entire global economy with 150 billion, this would probably not be fine, right? So basically to me, the question is, 
is there a way to mathematically deduce how much you can actually secure economically with um, uh, the stake that you're, we're talking about here, namely the 150 billion of ETH? <laughs> yes. Uh, so, so the first point, I think, you know, what, what you're saying is, well, if there were applications that already existed on Ethereum today and only they are being served by these additional services, then yes, the profit from corrupting doesn't increase because they're already there. But if it does increase the economy significantly because of like, oh, actually the same money is now securing a much bigger economy, then, you know, you, you'd be under serious trouble. But let me make a contrapositive to this. Uh, 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 the, imagine we are four years back. Okay. And, you know, somebody comes and tells me ETH is worth uh, whatever, 100 million, 200 million today. And, you know, there's no way that ETH can secure like a $500 billion worth of an ecosystem. And uh, that didn't turn out to be the case. ETH is now securing a $500 billion worth of ecosystem. And you can ask, why is that? Because ETH grew in value relative to the ecosystem securing it. It, it is securing and this is for the good, right? Because actually, you know, the value flow from the fees actually sustains enough value to actually make sure that ETH is valuable enough. And one could make the same argument that by making what the Ethereum secures a little bit more meta, by making, it's not only what is run on the Ethereum virtual machine, it's basically anything that the Ethereum trust ne network can secure, you're actually just you know, increasing the scope of applications. What were what could be built as applications on EVM versus what could be built as applications which are natively, you know, new distributed systems that can then be programmed on top. And you could make this argument that basically it will grow because you're receiving fees from not only, you know, block making, but also from all these other services accrue back to Ethereum. But I think there is a the, there's a separate part to your question, which is a more mathematical kind of a question. And the question is, what are like exact equations that like calculate and understand this over leveraging? So to do that, we have to actually look at what's happening in the ecosystem today already. And you look at it, you have $20 billion. You said Ethereum's worth 150 billion. Yes, that's true. But each stake is worth maybe less than 20 billion today but it is securing this $500 billion ecosystem. Why are we not worried about this over leverage? What is going on, right? Like what's the underpinnings of not worrying about this over leverage? And I think there are two things, two ways to look at it. One is a practical way, and then I'll go to the mathematical way. The practical way is you look at it and you say, oh, you know, you have $20 billion staked. And if you're an attacker, firstly, you have to acquire $20 billion or whatever, two-thirds of $20 billion. And because there is a slashing protocol at work, you're going guaranteed to lose that $6 billion, $7 billion, $13 billion, whatever, depending on what type of attack you're pulling off. So you're guaranteed to lose a whole bunch of money. Whether you are able to make away with a whole bunch of money is anybody's question, right? Like whether you, are, you will be able to run away with more than $10 billion from this ecosystem is and is questionable because because of what because you don't have exchange liquidity at that scale you don't have you know exit points and there is frictions and society will fork you out and all these other things 
that essentially constrain the profit from corruption. So the cost of corruption, the cost to the attacker is guaranteed that they have to they have to take, you know, this $6 billion or $13 billion risk. And the profit that they can make is potentially limited. And these two together constrain the system enough that practically we don't see these attacks. But you're evading my question, right? So basically because I'm asking what's the upper bound and you say, no, 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 but it's lower than the upper bound, <laughs> which I am sure it is. I mean, so basically I totally concede that, say, you break Ethereum, the maker tokens probably uh, will crash. I mean, totally with you on that. Um, but I mean, I, yeah, I mean, is there a way to calculate numbers? Yeah, that's the next part to the question. That So I just answered the practical way. We can also actually understand these more mathematically. And to do this, actually, you need to uh, redesign Ethereum a little bit. And uh, so, for example, what you need is, okay, well, how do we mathematically understand, like, what is the limits of leverage and why are we not over leveraged today on Ethereum, right? Before we extend leverage even more to other things that uh, I'm talking about, we have to understand why we are not over leveraged today. So the first part was a practical argument arguing that there is a kind of hardening of security at a certain scale. And that's that's the argument. But the second part is a more mathematical argument. And what you can do is you can say that the total amount of transact. So whenever there is some kind of an event, there is either a social response or other response, which happens within a certain time. And if you can bound the total value flow within that amount of time, so if you can bond that, you know, you, you will not be able to move more than whatever, you know, 6 billion or 7 billion or something within that time, which is the incidence response time. The incidence response time may be like time to detect a double, double signed block and then shut down like further transfers. It may be the time for like a community to fork out an obvious like, you know, a fraudulent fork. So essentially what you want to do is you want to bound the total volume that of transactions within the event horizon, right? Like, so there's an event horizon and then there is a total volume that, total transaction volume. And right now there is no nice way to do it because we don't know how much Binance transferred. We don't know how much Kraken transferred. We don't know how much some other like mom and pop exchange transferred. We don't know how much somebody sold a Mercedes Benz for and so on, right? Like there's all this activity happening outside and there is no protocol level monitoring. And why am I focusing on only exit exit paths is because you can kind of categorize transactions into two types. One is transactions that are internally atomic. I'm selling my ETH and getting a, and a board deep, right? Like I'm selling my ETH and getting a board deep. This is an atomic transfer inside the blockchain. If it reverts, both revert, right? I, I either have the ETH or I have the, uh, have the board deep and I'm kind of fine both ways. But there are transactions which are not atomic inside the blockchain, right? One leg of the transaction is happening on the blockchain and another leg is happening in the real world, right? These are the ones that get screwed if you actually have like, you know, blockchain reversals and reorgs and things like that. And what you can start doing is if you can bound the total value of non-atomic transactions per unit time, then you can actually start saying that, Actually, $20 billion is not a bound on whatever is the amount staked is not a bound on the total value at risk. It is only a bound on the total volume transacted within the event horizon. So that is, you can actually 
Okay, so this is a whole other discussion. I have a full design for it. Uh, how to actually modulate the Ethereum protocol where the slashed funds are used as insurance against reorgs. So you can actually start selling insurance bonds against the slash funds, or at least a portion of the slash funds. Even if half of the funds are burnt, the other half is used for insurance. And anybody who's transacting, you know, and wants protection against, you know, these bad events actually takes out an insurance from the Ethereum protocol. And by doing this, what happens is the Ethereum protocol has creates common information on the total volume transacted within within a unit time because you you wouldn't transact huge volume without having commensurate insurance. So anyway, this is a whole other like uh, uh, rabbit hole. I'm happy to talk more about, but I think you need more sophisticated systems to actually have mathematically bound the over leverage on, on Ethereum today. And we are building some of these into part of our protocol, uh, at least the roadmap of our protocol, but we do need more native support from Ethereum. What kind of heuristics are you using for the event horizon and the volume? I mean, how would you define the event horizon? How long do you think that is on ETH2? <laughs> okay, so the, the event horizon depends on the type of bad event you're worried about. And I think one important kind of bad event we should be worried about is short-term reorgs. I claim a block is finalized, right? And I, I make a lot of transactions. And then like I go and create another, as a stakers, they create another like fork with a, another finalized block, right? Which should not happen and is slashed by the slashing protocol. But, you know, if there is more money to be made, it could happen. But with with, with East 2, that's much more difficult, no? I mean, so basically reorging, I mean, so you can miss a block and you can kind of, you can, you can produce a network split by, um, submitting a block deliberately late, but you you kind of eliminate most of the of the reorg um, mess that we had with Ethereum one. No, I mean eliminate to the extent that it creates an economic damage to the attacker. But if the economic profit to the attacker is five hundred billion, okay, that's it. So that's that's the thing that absolutely right. Like proof of stake created slashing, and slashing creates an economic damage, but I may take the economic damage because my economic profit is higher than the economic damage. And so I think that's the thing that, because, you know, producing invalid blocks is not a valid attack on full nodes, which can validate the blocks. So really the only major safety attack is reorging finalized blocks, right? And you can reorg finalized blocks if you have majority stake and you're willing to lose it. And so the question is like, Suppose somebody reorgs a ETH2 block, right? And at what time scale? So if they reorg a block which is 10 days old, likely we will all, even if we slash it, we will continue with the other fork, right? Like the fork in which, you know, which was not 10 days old. But if it was 12 minutes old, which one will we continue with? I don't know, right? And so... The event horizon is basically, you know, the time to detect a reorg attack or the time within which you can effectively make a reorg attack, which will not be rejected. And so that's roughly what I would say. I mean, it's in the order of basically minutes or hours rather than in the order of like months or weeks. Right. So that's the and so essentially you have to just bound the economic volume traded within that period. And I think that's why Ethereum is safe today. 
because of these reasons. And we can Im- imbue something like Eigenlayer with the exact same set of conditions. But we can even make it more programmatic because we are building it. We can say that you can not transact more than a certain value per unit time and so on. And that's enough to basically make it very difficult to execute these attacks. Right. Yeah. Thanks for this excursion. And we would love to see the the design of the insurance thing. That actually sounded super cool. I hope uh, we'll, we'll learn more about that soon. I, I wanted to take it back, obviously, about the topic we also want to talk about, like Eigenlayer itself, right? A little bit kind of the economics, the participants. We were talking a little bit about the validators basically opting into these other services. Probably you could also see maybe like liquid staking protocols forcing their validators essentially to opt into certain services. And then on the other hand, you have uh, people paying for the these, these eigenlayer services that are being provided. That's Is that correct? And then I guess how or who pays, first of all, uh, is it the applications? How do they pay for that? What are kind of like models and then and, and who then receives the... The, I guess that's the validators again, but maybe you could talk a little bit just about like how yeah. this. So the economy explain. that is un- underpinning this. So one way we think about the economy underlying Eigenlayer is to start with first principles. And the first principle is the core value proposition of blockchain is decentralized trust. And wh- how we think of Eigenlayer is a marketplace for decentralized trust. If decentralized trust is such an important thing in this this blockchain economy, we need a marketplace where decentralized trust is bought and sold. And people had recognized this in other ways. And one way of thinking about it was block space as a kind of like a unit of decentralized trust. But we think that's not the right level of abstraction. Decentralized block space is not the right level of abstraction for the generic nature of decentralized trust. You may want to run a new distributed system. You may want to run like a secure multi-party computation, whatever that was not natively in the protocol, right? So the right unit is, oh, you have this decentralized trust network and you are basically committing to do additional validation. And the question is how much uh, value are you willing to uh, take for it, right? And so to elucidate this economy a bit, so there are two sides to this market. One side is stakers who are then offering their decentralized trust services to others, right? And the other side of the market is, uh, we think of them as middlewares, but they could be generic distributed systems, right? Services that are built on top of this. These services, you know, just to make make it concrete, let's think of it, think of the data availability service that we're building. You can think of it just simply as a data storage service. It's not a data storage, it's data availability, but just for simplicity, let's think of it as, hey, I'm going to take some blob and throw it into this network and they have to store this blob for this amount of time. And now you want to do this, who is paying for this? So somebody creates this service, let's say, you know, Frederica and Felix wrote the service, they want to create a data storage service, they wrote it, and then they're tired of like pumping and shilling a new token. So they say, no, I'm not going to do it. I'm just going to run it on Eigenlayer, just throw it on this distributed network. And they do it and they say, oh, you know, there's a, a Frederick and Felix wallet, right? Like, so you have a wallet and you say that anybody who's paying, so, and you also create an economy around it. You say anybody who wants to store data on this distributed network needs to pay $1 per byte or one ETH per byte or whatever, right? One ETH per gigabyte, okay? 
So you have this one ETH per gigabyte. And now somebody else who wants to use the service, they come and they have some interfaces. They store the data on this like decentralized network and they pay that one ETH per gigabyte to store that data. And you know, when Frederick and Felix created it, they also created a distribution economy which said that, yeah, we will take uh, uh, 30% of this like one ETH per gigabyte and the remaining 70% goes to the validators. And the validators look at it and they say, does this make sense for me or not? And they opt in if it makes sense, if that economy makes sense for them. And so every time when somebody comes and stores data, they collect that one ETH and that one ETH, 0.3 ETH goes into your wallet and then the remaining 0.7 ETH gets redistributed among all the stakers. So there is really a third party, like there was originally a service and then there was the stakers. And then there is service users of that service, which could be rollups, which could be applications, like distributed applications, which should be end users who just want like a Dropbox type thing. Uh, to be built on a blockchain. So that's the economy. The economy is basically the creator of the service decides how value is apportioned between the creator, the innovator, and the service providers, the stakers, right? So how this economy is distributed. And once they set forth the set of these conditions, what they actually do is, you know, a service creator. So to delve into this a little bit more, the service creator also uh, creates a like a container, which you can, the stakers should be able to download and run, which does this particular service, downloading and, and, and storing the data for this amount of period if fee has been paid. And they also create a smart contract, the service or middleware creates a smart contract, which talks to the eigenlayer smart contracts uh, and establishes who can participate in the system, each stakers with whatever, you know, at least so much staked, or do you allow stake ETH holders? What is the entry condition to participate in your particular service? That's the first part. The second part is what is the uh, payment condition? Or oh, it is actually one ETH per gigabyte and 0.3 goes to the creators and 0.7 goes to the stakers. That's the payment conditions are encoded in the smart contract. And finally, negative incentives like slashing are also encoded in the smart contract. It says, or oh, if there is a recall game and then I say that randomly I'm going to recall some bytes and you have to produce it and if you don't produce it, you'll get slashed. Right? So some kind of like a negative incentives. Those are encoded into the smart contract. Now, if you're a staker you and you're participating in Eigenlayer, you can go and express your preference whether you want to opt into this particular service or not. And you go in and like, you know, sign a thing and say that, yes, I want to opt into this particular service then you're registered for that service, which means you're supposed to be providing it. And if you uh, violate some conditions stated in the smart contract, then you will get slashed. But if you don't violate any of those things, you will continue to receive payments at the encoded rate. So that's the core economy of Eigenlayer. So to build an Eigenlayer service, you have to write an off-chain container that stakers can download and run. It can be in arbitrary language as of now. And the there is an on-chain slashing contract or on-chain contract, service contract you have to write, which controls gating, who participates, positive incentives and negative incentives. These are all encoded into the smart contract. And so when somebody is opting into a particular eigenlayer service, they know exactly what set of things they are opting into. How much due diligence does this require from 
the validators, right? So basically, if I'm a mom and pop validator, do I know which things I should be validating on if it's too difficult to discern which ones are good things to co-validate for? I I might be foregoing yield, um, which might make it economically unviable to uh, validate myself. And I mean, this is something that the network needs, right? And so basically, we've we've seen recentralization, you know, for other reasons. So I mean, basically, people <laughs> people just stake with their exchanges, or you know, there's you know, uh, Lido, and uh, you know, don't get me started on proposal builder separation and Meth Boost, whatever. So basically, I mean, we've seen these. That does this will this add to this uh, entire situation? It adds and it subtracts, and uh, I'm going to explain both sides. How much due diligence does a home staker need? And what we are trying to do is to create a audit economy around these eigenlayer services, right? So there is going to be just like smart contract audits is how like users trust smart contracts to do the things that they say in the white paper or whatever other things. So there is a barrier for a user to use a smart contract. In the same way, now there is a barrier for staker to opt in to new services. So there is an attendant audit economy that is needed. And we want to absolutely minimize the amount of diligence that somebody has to do. And there may be multiple categories of services, those that are kind of vetted by us and, you know, or some other reputed agencies and so on and you know and stakers may feel more inclined to opt into them and there may be others that basically for so you can imagine a world where a staker home staker says yeah you know give me frederica's curation of services i only like opt into everything that frederica says right and that should be possible and if somebody says no no actually i want to be the one who wants to make the decision that's also you know something that is available in this free economy. Okay, so there is a bit of barrier on auditing, vetting, like what these services are. So that is something that, but it can be kind of delegated, right? Like just that ability to say that I'm trusting X for doing the delegation and I'm just following along. Uh, And in terms of missing out on yield, you know, I think like everywhere else, there will be a power law that will be maybe three services that account for pretty much all of the yield, like 90% of the yield in this kind of a platform. And it's the same way, like we have dApps and, you know, there are thousands of dApps and maybe three account for pretty much all of the fees today on Ethereum. And there'll be a similar thing and where a home stakers just opt into these three services and essentially get all of the yield. And so one of our interests is in making sure that these services are as lightweight as possible that a homestaker should be able to opt in. And this is a kind of like a guiding principle for us is actually we think something is scaling only if each node needs to do very little, but the system can do a lot, right? Like a scalable system basically means that each node does little, but the system together does a lot. And that's when decentralization and scalability are not in fundamental tension. And we think that there is, we have, you know, in general, the ecosystem, as an ecosystem, we have understood enough principles that actually we know how to build systems which scale horizontally. For example, our data availability service is built in such a way that each staker 
needs like 0.3 megabytes per second in, in network bandwidth. But together, the system bandwidth is 15 megabytes per second. So it is not based on everybody needing to have a lot of computational infrastructure. It is based on everybody doing a little, but data being distributed through this network and, and thus achieving scaling. So one part of the answer is making it easy to do uh, audits and follow along other people's like recommendations. Another part of the answer is there's only a few services which will matter, and we try to make those services be home, you know, be uh, easy for home stakers to participate in. And I think there's a third dimension to this answer, which actually I'm most excited about. So if you look at the whole MEV and other things going on in Ethereum, um, one thing we'll see is there is a lot of discussion about how to keep uh, home stakers uh, decentralized. And if you just examine the system objectively, there is a gradient or pressure to centralization, but there is no gradient or pressure to decentralization. The system doesn't have it. We only enforce it socially or religiously. Right, like there is the system by itself has no pressure. There is no advantage in being decentralized. There is some advantage in being centralized. So there is a gradient or pressure to become more centralized. And all we can do, all we are trying to do when we're doing, you know, MEV boost or PBS or any other like design consideration is how to minimize the gradient to centralization. That's all that's being done. There is no gradient to decentralization. It's not that, and because decentralization is not objectively measurable, it's not possible to make the protocol recognize and incentivize it, even though it's one of the most critical aspects of building the Ethereum protocols. So we are very excited about the role Eigenlayer can play in this. What is this? So in Eigenlayer, we don't want the platform to exert subjectivity, but we want middlewares or services consuming, you know, uh, decentralized trust to exert subjectivity. What do I mean by that? For example, imagine Felix is building a service. This service is based on, you know, uh, threshold encryption. Okay, so part of threshold encryption is is dividing some secret into many many chunks, and each person holds a chunk. And if they all don't collude with each other, or at least majority of people don't collude with each other, the secret remains a secret. Okay. This is an example of something which is not based on economic security. This is based purely on decentralization because people should not be able to collude with each other easily. If it's just like, so there are certain things, certain services which can absorb trust from economics. And there are certain services which only absorb trust from decentralization. And threshold encryption is a great example of something that only absorbs trust from decentralization. So Felix may come in and say when building on Eigenlayer that he doesn't care about who has how much ETH, but he has some subjective measurement of decentralization. Maybe he comes in and says, I only want rocket pool stakers to participate in a system, or he only wants certain home stakers to participate in a system, or he has an Oracle feed that he himself creates. And it says only people in this, like, you know, my whitelist can participate in this ecosystem because he has somehow subjectively vetted that they are actually more decentralized. So if this happens, then what happens is that you're actually then Felix is paying for decentralization. So the, the decentralized quorum can potentially earn even more than a centralized quorum, creating a gradient, a pressure to decentralization. Because decentralized trust is 
So another way of thinking about it is if we all value decentralized trust, why are we not paying for it? Because the rich expressive markets to value decentralized trust don't exist today. And if you, if you allow for rich expressive markets to value decentralized trust, people will pay more for things to be decentralized in, in things that you care about. And we don't know how the economics is going to play out, but at least there is a possibility to create a gradient for decentralization. This is something that I'm super excited about as a possibility for what Eigenlayer. What kind of services do you see building on top of Eigenlayer? So basically, what are the biggest use cases you see coming um, yeah. on top of Eigenlayer? So, I mean, uh, of course, we are building the first service ourselves, which is a data availability service. And the reason we chose to double down on building a data availability service is, of course, the Ethereum roadmap is uh, strongly oriented towards a modular ecosystem where rollups basically write data into Ethereum and write commitments. And one of the things that uh, we want to see is a world where thousands of rollups can flourish. And to do this, you need much more data bandwidth than available on Ethereum today. And even in the foreseeable future, including things like dark sharding, we want to provide 100x, 1000x more data bandwidth than what is available. And the set of techniques already actually have been pioneered in the Ethereum uh, research community, and we can build you know, much more flexible engineering modules around these basic cryptography, like using you know, things like KCG polynomial commitments and how they were used in dunk sharding. We can take them and engineer like m many different kinds of systems around it. So data availability is one example of what we are building and which could be a very useful ecosystem service. And we are trying to build it in a way that uh, uh, stakers of all shapes and forms can participate in it. That's one example. Another example of what could be built on top of Eigenlayer is a whole host of MEV management services. Why, why, do we, why am I talking about MEV management services? Is if you're staked, if you're staking in Ethereum, but you're also restaked on Eigenlayer, then you can start making credible commitments about your behavior. You can say, for example, I'm selling you a portion of my block space. You're doing an auction, but you're not doing an auction where you're selling the entirety of block space, which is what is happening in the MEV boost market today. Whereas what you could do is you could say, yeah, I'm selling most of my block space, but I still retain the ability to add stuff at the end of my block space. Okay, this is something that you could do. In fact, we, we had a design for this we call MEV Boost++, which is basically saying you, you are auctioning off the rights to fill you know, some portion of the block, but there's still space at the end of the block where I can add in as a block proposal whatever transactions that I want at the end of the block. So you don't have to make a trade-off between expressing my preferences as a block proposer and the economic upside of having to participate in an MEV market. I can do both. So this is one example of what you can build on, on, on Eigenlayer uh, as an MEV service. But there's a whole host of other things. You can start doing things like multiple block builders, decentralized block building. What I do is instead of selling all my block space to one person, I say, oh, I'm selling the first 30% of my block space to Frederica, the next 30% to Felix, and so on, right? Like I can start doing more, more of these things. And what, what does Eigenlayer particularly enable in it? The idea that if I don't 
stand by my word. If I told Frederica that I'm going to include 30% of her, you know, transactions in the first portion of the block, but I don't, then I'm slashed. I could be slashed on Ethereum, right? So that I could lose my ETH, and that gives Frederica some trust in me in actually making this transaction possible. So the ability to make credible commitments actually opens up the space for how we do transaction ordering priority. Even things like I want to build a threshold encrypted mempool. So I commit to maybe selling the first 30% of my block space. And then I, I say that the remaining 30% or the next 30% I'm going to use threshold encryption. And I agree, I send a signature saying I'm going to use the decrypted version of these encrypted transactions. And if I don't include them in the block, then I'll get slashed. So it opens up the space for anybody to come in and innovate on MEV management services. So that's that's one huge category. There are also other things there, things like I want to do uh, event-driven activation. For example, Felix is like, hey, I, you know, Whenever my, I'm uh, I'm under collateralized on Compound, then refill my collateral from my wallet at this address, and that's just a kind of standing instruction, event-driven instruction that he wants to give. You can do this today using this category of like middlewares called keepers, which you know like Gelato and Chainlink has something, and there are others building in. And but the problem with those services is there is a kind of non-attributability problem, whether that node triggered the transaction, and but the transaction was not included in the block, or that node did not trigger the transaction, and therefore it was not included in the block. This is not attributable. Whereas uh, on Eigenlayer, if a block proposer opts into these event-driven conditions, if a block proposer act, opts into these event-driven conditions, then it's uniquely attributable, because the block proposer, of course, controls block space. So. This is another example. There's all kinds of other examples like whole block flash loans and you know other like crazy economic objects you can start building. Because block proposers are staked, they can kind of opt into covenants on what they cannot break. So this is one class of solutions, MEV management. Are questions? Yes, let me move away from the financialized use cases a bit. So in principle, there's lots of things that you would love to have a trust network for that are non-financially uh, non-financialized and consequently currently crowded out of the truly credibly neutral blockchain which is ethereum so can you kind of make it viable for them to run on eigenlayer absolutely i think one consequence of like uh, high performance data availability is if you have like a huge amount of data availability bandwidth now you know you can start running applications which are simply financially priced out, right? And one of the ways we think about this is if you look at the current networks, the operational cost of running the network is far lower than the capital cost of staking, right? Like I'm putting $20 billion of staking, so I need at least a 10%, 7% some APR, so I need at least $2 billion annually in return, right? So that's the capital cost of staking. And then there's an operational cost of like scaling and providing whatever services that you want. And actually the operational cost is not at all dominant right today. Staking cost is dominant. So you can overlay more operations and, and still you know, not suffer significant cost. That's one, one part of it. The other part of it is actually just by better engineering, you can use the same amount of bandwidth much more efficiently 
And that's the part I was talking about in our data availability is by actually every node doing a little, but together they do a lot. And by scaling across nodes, you can actually provide a huge amount of bandwidth for applications to consume. And this is one of the reasons we actually built the data availability first is it's just like opens up the volume of use cases from use cases where there was high amount of value flowing per bit of data to use cases where you don't need a lot of value flowing per bit and then open up to the long you know, use cases where like there is going to be a lot of data needed to be transmitted to, to arrive at to still like leverage the credible neutral platform like Ethereum for that. Let me zoom right out. So, um, I mean, if you look at Eigenlayer um, as a concept, it's kind of a different paradigm in scaling. So, I mean, so currently in scaling, we kind of, we have layer twos, uh, we have um, like the IBC, you know, style connected layer ones. Um, and now we kind of have this, piggybacking mechanism that is Eigenlayer. Can you talk about how these compare and whether piggybacking often um, of an existing economic system um, has negative externalities for just that system? So basically, does it do anything? Does it take away anything from Ethereum that you're using this as well as, a, as an economic trust layer? I think it goes back to mostly the leverage type questions that we talked about earlier, right? That's one part. So I won't go into the same thing again. But what other issues are there? One other issue is the same stake is committed now for Ethereum, but for also to do these other validation tasks. And uh, the one thing to understand is Ethereum is the primary uh, and everything else is the secondary in this market because you're staked in ETH and the actual mechanics, which I didn't go into earlier, is you stake in Ethereum and then you set the withdrawal powers to the eigenlayer smart contracts. So what happens is Ethereum has like first dibs that slashing, Ethereum has basically, so Ethereum is the primary loan holder, so to say. Everybody else is a secondary on this platform. So that means actually that Ethereum protocol has the priority on slashing. So I don't think it affects the core core properties. There's one thing though, which you know is just temporary, and we hope that it'll get sorted out eventually. Is the idea that uh, when somebody is slashed on eigenlayer, when does Ethereum get to know about it? Right? Like if there is a huge delay, and like the person is actually completely slashed already, they don't have anything remaining, and you know, Ethereum thinks that they have a lot, but actually they don't. And this problem can be minimized by, you know, a, a feature in Ethereum called smart contract triggered withdrawals. If the, Ethereum, if the eigenlayer smart contract can immediately, the way slashing happens is they immediately triggers withdrawal from Ethereum. Then basically you don't have this principal agent type problem. So that's another, uh, another dimension that we've discussed with the EF uh, people and I think in, in general, something like smart contract triggered withdrawals helps all kinds of uh, staking protocols. But other than that, I don't see any significant other aspects to 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 the. You uh, would you would always withdraw the entire validator, like all thirty two ETH for every slashing. I could imagine like some slashings being kind of minor to just kind of discourage uh, you. So one of, not... yeah, I, I think one of the principles we're using for eigenlayer. Uh, slashing is 
to be as rare as possible and when it happens to be as severe as possible. So as severe as possible, because we don't slash for things like uptime, we only slash when there is like a significant safety failure, probably malicious action. So when there's a probably malicious action, we don't need to slash a little. So slashing is designed to be very rare and severe when it actually happens. But this, this you mean, is this for your specific service you're building or because I guess that's kind of customizable for that's someone. Right. That that's right. But that's the recommendation for all the services. And we want to, uh, because, you know, we don't take slashing eat lightly. And I think it should not be taken lightly by any service either, uh, especially because of this primary secondary type problem that we talked about. And it should only happen when there is a clearly provable malicious action. If if I'm slashed, do I have a recourse? So basically, if say if say for instance I'm evil ha, 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 and I build uh, a service on top of Eigenlayer that um, uh, uses a malicious contract to slash unsuspecting stakers, do they have a recourse? Can they, can they do something against this? Absolutely. So this is something we take very very seriously and. No amount of audit, uh, audit and other things is sufficient to guarantee that there's no like edge case and malicious code base in slashing. So I think that is a significant problem. And in it, especially in Eigenlayer, which couples trust across multiple systems, you know, it could very well happen that all each stakers opt into Frederica's like uh, evil contract and like, you know, they all get slashed and it could be like an absolute nightmare. So the way we deal with this is by um, requiring or like enabling what we call a slashing veto. There is a veto for slashing run by like a reputed committee. The only thing this committee can do is basically veto slashings. And um, you can think of basically slashing needs approval both by the contract and by this committee in order to actually pass. So that's the trust model is basically you're trusting one of these two to work correctly to protect against slashing errors. And if both are malicious, then that is a problem. Okay, but that's currently social consensus, right? So basically, it, if it's, it's, it's a pool of known individuals who say like, clearly Friederike is out of her mind. This was not a slashable offense. Give back the stake. That's correct. So this, is a, this system relies on both neutral objective uh, algorithm, which is, you know, a smart contract plus a social layer. So the things that blockchains have natively is a social layer to fork the chain if something crazy happened. Sure. And we are an overlay layer and we don't have the ability to fork Ethereum and some, or we don't want to assume the ability to have fork Ethereum when something bad happens. So we are incorporating the social layer into the protocol and that's a necessary and so this layer is not run by like a economic committee. We do not think that it's correct to have a token committee or whatever, you know, run, run this thing. It should be run by like trusted individuals, reputed entities in the, in the ecosystem. Yeah, that makes sense. Coming back to the second half of my question, how does this compare and contrast with other scaling solution, basically loosely meshing eigenlayer with um, layer twos and you know IBC connected blockchains. Yeah, uh, how does it compare and contrast? So eigenlayer the, is designed for a modular world, so it is designed for the roll-up world. Uh, so it 
it doesn't add particularly anything to the to one part of the roll up world which is you know you want to do zero knowledge proofs or other like economic games in which you can actually prove that your execution state is correct i think that is something that uh, we like a lot and you know it's completely complementary to what is what eigenlayer is offering so it it does offer something to in terms of our particular solution on data availability but also for the ability for others to build even better data availability solutions on top of eigenlayer i think that is something that we are quite excited about the fact that you know the area of open innovation can can be quite large there in terms of other services other other kind of like paradigm so just to add a little bit more there on for things like optimistic rollups you have a layer of economic security which is the sequencer is basically making a claim that what they said is correct and then you also have a layer of verification which is that they'll get slashed if if that doesn't happen correctly you know on things like eigen layer you can reuse a lot of stake and provide more economic security at you know for for things like optimistic rollups uh, so that's something interesting it adds to the optimistic rollup ecosystem on on the zk rollup ecosystem i think one thing uh, something like eigen layer adds is you know proof verification on ethereum is still expensive right and and it is expensive because of some basic fundamental limits you know if you use the ethereum blocks only to do like zk proof verification maybe you can do like 15 to 30 zk proof verifications per block so that's the current like block size and gas consumption uh, of these things so if you had a world where there are like thousands of different rollups then they cannot all write zk proofs into ethereum every block so that's not possible but what they can do is if there was a kind of like restaked quorum of all the ethereum stakers and they all verify but the fact is verifying zk proofs is very trivial off chain right like you can you can run it in parallel you can check hundreds of zk proofs in parallel each of them may take only like tens of milliseconds and so you can actually verify thousands of zk proofs uh so in in a in a reasonable note so the question is like on on an off chain uh so the the proposal could be something like you can create a service on top of eigen layer where all the each stakers participate and they verify like thousands of zk proofs in parallel and then they just certify that they have verified all of this on ethereum so this could be an example of a kind of synergy with things like zero knowledge rollups and the one thing we see in zk rollups today is they wait for a long time to batch because of the verification costs and you don't need to do it and you can have a bridge which which moves data between the rollup and ethereum every block if if you had a layer like this going to your broader question on things like ibc and the external ecosystem uh eigen layer bears close similarity with what is called interchain security right which is basically one chain providing security to other chains i think there are a couple of important differences interchain security as it is being talked about today is the the provider chain has to have a governance upgrade to to opt in to serve this other chain and i'm you know just working in this space for enough time anything that has a governance upgrade i'm like okay that's that's too slow so i like the nature of like what we are doing with eigen layer which is basically validator level opt in permissionless each validator make a decision and opt in i think it reduces frictions massively 
Uh, and the second thing is the way we think about what should be built on eigenlayer, which is more of a subjective opinion, but I think it aligns deeply with the Ethereum land landscape is to build modules, each module being secured by the same stake, rather than to build chains, which is what interchain security is optimizing for. Okay, to add to your last question about IBC in particular, right? IBC is inter-blockchain communication is the standard for talking between different blockchains. I think we need a powerful IBC port for Ethereum. And I'd be very excited to see people build something like that, for example, on Eigenlayer. Because what you can do is once you have stakers opt-in, you can verify signatures from all these IBC-connected chains and just make an economic certificate saying that, yeah, we all know that this is the set of signatures in these other chains. So that's an example for how uh, what can be built on Eigenlayer. Thanks for expanding so far into it. I think we're also like uh, been at it for a while. I think we can slowly get to r r um, kind of wrapping up. Maybe for the final question, we can talk a little bit about where the project is at right now. I mean, we talked a lot about what is theoretically possible. Uh, maybe we can hear a bit, you know, where are you at right now? What's on the roadmap and like the immediate future? Uh, yeah. The way we're building Eigenlayer is initially we are building the first service ourselves. And on launch, there will only be the one service, the data availability service we are building on top of it. And we want to slowly open it up from being a one service platform to a few like partnered services to then to be a self-serve platform on which anybody can come and build anything that they want. So we'll see the first service launch hopefully mid next year. And then we'll have a whole bunch of uh, other services on board in the months following. So that's the roadmap. Right now we are in internal testnet. We have a you know few integrations we are testing inside the uh, internal testnet. So that's that's where we are. And we'll hope to have a more public-facing testnet in the months between now and 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 uh, launch. Fantastic. We look forward to that. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you on, Sri Ram. It's, uh, I have learned a lot. This is such an interesting project. I'm excited to see where this takes you. Thank you so much, Frederica. I've had, you know, I've really, really enjoyed talking to you and Felix on this uh, podcast. Look forward to be in touch in the future. Cool. Thank you, guys. Thank you, Felix. Thank you, Frederica. Thank you, Sri Ram. Thank you for joining us on this week's episode. We release new episodes every week. You can find and subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, YouTube, SoundCloud, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you have a Google Home or Alexa device, you can tell it to listen to the latest episode of the Epicenter podcast. Go to epicenter.tv slash subscribe for a full list of places where you can watch and listen. And while you're there, be sure to sign up for the newsletter so you get new episodes in your inbox as they're released. If you want to interact with us, guests, or other podcast listeners, you can follow us on Twitter and please leave us a review on iTunes. It helps people find the show and we're always happy to read them. So thanks so much. And we look forward to being back next week.